they needed somebody to help run that program for them. And I raised my hand and said, I would love that opportunity. And I got it at age 26. So I was traveling to Costa Rica, Mexico and helping uh, set up manufacturing plants. You got to expand your comfort zone because it does create opportunities, especially in today's world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So because I was comfortable, I got the opportunity. Welcome to Guild Stories, the podcast where every person has a story, and it's the stories that connect us all. I am Justin Rickliffs, founder and CEO of Guild Content. We are so grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where we will explore the stories of hustlers, dreamers, and doers who are going for it by pursuing meaningful work and living life with purpose. Welcome to Guild Stories. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Guild Stories. I'm joined today by a professor who is uh, much more intelligent and intellectual than myself, but so glad that he would share his wisdom. Uh, professor Dave Geenins, um, just got to spend some time together with your class here at Benedictine College, which is a beautiful campus, by the way. Holy smokes. Um, anyway, welcome to the show. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. Oh, I appreciate you having me as we sit here in Atchison, Kansas, which is only an hour-ish. An hour, an hour from South Kansas City, only 30, 40 minutes from your neck of the woods. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't bad at all. And then the campus itself is beautiful. Tell us, uh, jump us into your story. Tell us about um, the, the work you do here, the college here, and then we'll maybe kind of wind you all the way back to the beginning. You bet. Well, I'm a non-traditional academic, and um, that means I'm, I'm not Ph.D. qualified, but I am academically qualified to teach. Uh, but I'm also professionally qualified because I spent over 30 years in the marketplace. So mm. I wasn't born in the realm of academia. My dad was a college professor, okay. so I got to see the um, lifestyle yeah. and what he did, and I always admired it. I, he didn't like it. <laughs> he had a PhD <laughs> in economics. and uh, Where did he teach? Uh, Baker University. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Baker University. So um, I had an opportunity. We sold a company, and... Um, I had an opportunity to do something else. And so I called up Steve Minnis, who's the president here at the college, and asked him if they would ever hire somebody like me. And they had a spot in my technical competency, which is accounting, which was amazing. And uh, did the full day interview thing and ended up getting the job. And so in, in a matter really of 30 days, I went from being a company CEO to being a college professor. <laughs> and I've been here 13 years. 13. Which is amazing. That's awesome. We got connected through, actually, as they always are, interesting stories. Um, I, I rolled up to a Friday night rehearsal dinner in Syracuse, New York. Um, my wife was unable to join me on that on that weekend. She's getting her own. She's getting a master's in counseling. So her she couldn't come to Colin and Capri's wedding. And Colin Potter, who people on the show have heard about, he's on our team, wonderful guy. Got married last summer and should have been two summers ago, but then COVID. And so anyway, I get stuck at the grown-ups table, as I should. <laughs> all of his all of his crew is like a decade younger than me. And so we roll up to the rehearsal dinner Friday night, and my name tag is at the grown-ups table, which is awesome. And so I roll in by myself, and it's like um, 
awesome couple to my right, awesome couple to my left. You happen to be directly to my left. And I was like, Hey, what's, you know, who are you? What's your story? Where are you from? And, uh, long, long and short, we had both traveled from KC to Syracuse, but met in Syracuse, New York. I remember that was a <laughs> wonderful evening, wonderful meal. And yeah, the, that circumstance was perfect. Yeah, it was awesome. And you weren't, I had my wife, who's also a talker. She was to my left, so she was engaged <laughs> with the wonderful couple to her left. So you and I were kind we of the, the bachelor, night. we're the bachelors right. at the yeah. adult table. We had the whole at night. Least for that, yeah. that window. We had the yeah. whole night. It was great. Um, but I was struck and intrigued, and, and I'd love for us to maybe get into it. Um, your, and, and you hinted at it already, but your background in entrepreneurship, your background as a business owner, your mindset around economics, around accounting, around where all of this intersects with faith and um, tradition and story. It's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, story of your own. And not to mention your um, authoring books. You're, you're a very talented and well-versed guy, and, and I, I can't wait to pick your brain. So let's do it. Um, so walk us back to the very beginning. Where'd you grow up? What was, what was upbringing like for you? And, and then we'll, we'll get there. Well, my parents were both educators, yeah. um, and so school was normal, and mm-hmm. there were high expectations. I remember in first grade, and I know that you probably didn't want me to go that far back. Yeah, no, but it's, take but, it. But it's pretty funny. I mean, first grade, we're living in South Texas. My dad huh. is teaching at University of Texas Pan Am. I think it's something else now, but awesome. way down south. And um, I remember first grade coming home, I was really happy with my report card. Because I only had one C. My parents weren't very happy because that one C was in conduct, <laughs> which is like the biggest grade. It's like the the bellwether of how your kid's doing. I had a C in conduct. So anyway, I learned really fast that school was really serious and getting a C in conduct was not one not of the okay. things. Not one That's of the right. things you did. So anyway, awesome. you know, I didn't get any more pressure probably than anybody else to be a decent kid or a decent student um i don't ever remember you know no there were no rewards no incentives no whoopings if you didn't do well you know it was just kind of like in the air it was like go to school you go learn and you go yeah yeah Yeah, that basic um my my faith background i want to start there because it has a much more meaningful place later in my life but uh there was my dad had a phd in economics as i mentioned but there was no utility in faith that he found so we were pretty much christmas and easter christians that was the depth of of my faith so you celebrated something other than the christmas tree at christmas and then at easter you dressed up and outside the easter bunny you also realized that oh you know christ rose and that that was it but uh my dad moved around uh from south texas we moved to murray kentucky to murray state university where he taught then back to south texas and then ultimately settled in kansas in Baldwin City at Baker University, where both my parents met. And uh, I actually went to, um, after high school, I was appointed to West Point in the Air Force Academy. Mm. And so chose to go to the Air Force Academy. Took a year and a half to get in and took 60 days to get out. <laughs> uh, but that was one of the more... My dad's pro- an Air Force guy. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the more profound experiences of mm. my life. I uh, learned so much about what I wanted also, that's where I engaged God as if he really existed because I prayed to him as if he really existed because it was a fairly miserable experience. I learned that I'm not an order taker. 
Uh, I'm not in, I wasn't insubordinate, mm -hmm. but I don't like people telling me stuff and not offering me an explanation of why. Mm -hmm. And so, because that's kind of how I'm wired, mm -hmm. I'll always offer an explanation why if I'm asking somebody to do something. And that served me really well in, in, in leadership lessons. Mm -hmm. But I, that's where I started my true engagement with God. Cause I made him, I made some promises and, um, if he would relieve me of the burden of the academy, which he did. Mm. And I still remember those promises those days. And I'm, it's, you know, what, 40, 40 years later. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. And then, and then where, where, what was next? What, what, where yeah. was the next part of the journey? Well, of course it was August now. And so I went, I went to Baker, mm. uh, because I moved back home and, yep. Of course, I had no hair because they had, the Air Force Academy had taken care of that. They, I'd also, Clean job, I, good. You know, at the end of high school, I didn't weigh that much, and when I came back from the Air Force Academy, I weighed less, about twenty pounds, even less than that. So I was Gosh. a I was a stick with yeah. no hair. Yeah, <laughs> if you guys can envision <laughs> that. Um, and so I just start. I loved being just a student. It's the first time in my life that I wasn't an athlete, mm. which I was in, in high school. I could be just a student, and I really thrived in that environment. Mm. Baker was a great college. I got a degree in accounting, uh, which I knew nothing about going in, and started uh, after graduation uh, as a CPA in a regional firm in Topeka. Huh. I met my wife my junior year. Uh, we got married the summer after graduation. That's how things were done back then. Yep, yep. And um, we both, she was a school teacher, and I was a CPA auditor. And we started living life. That's great. Yeah. In Topeka? In Topeka. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, cool. Where, where did kids come in the picture, entrepreneurship? Like, what was that yeah. part of the story? So I found the uh, auditing career amazing on one hand, but I could not see myself doing that for the rest of my life. I didn't have the next step or the next answer, but I knew this wasn't it. So I knew some people in the apparel industry at Lee Jeans. Oh, yeah. Buddy and, Lee, uh, man. That's right. Yeah. Buddy Lee, the little doll. Yep. Um, uh, and I, they had an internal auditing position open, and I literally took a pay cut, and we wanted to come back to Kansas City Got it. Yeah. as opposed to Topeka. We had a nice time in Topeka, but Kansas City's nicer. My yep. brother was in Kansas City, and so we moved, um, and I joined Lee Jeans as an internal auditor, and I had no idea how important that step was in my career. As an internal auditor, I got to travel to all of their manufacturing plants. And I didn't know anything about anything. I'd never been in a manufacturing plant, didn't know anything about sewing, didn't know anything about denim, didn't know anything about design, didn't know anything about merchandising. I knew a lot about accounting, don't get me wrong, but it was. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got to learn everything about that business every process, every computer system, every way of thinking. How do you run a manufacturing plant? Because we were there to help to try to sure. make all those things better. Sure. So I spent a year doing that. It was absolutely amazing. That's awesome. And then... Uh, this, this is roughly when? This time was uh, mid-80s. Mid-80s, okay. Yeah, okay. mid-80s. Yeah. And then about then, uh, manufacturing apparel outside the United States became a thing. Mm. That was, you know, I'm sure it had been done, but it wasn't everybody's thing. So Lee had a bunch of U.S. plants, and they needed to put in plants in um, in Latin America was where they were targeting. And, of course, there were geopolitical reasons back then with all the sure. 
so the communist insurgencies in Central America and El Salvador and and so forth. You know, they wanted to bring ec- boost the economic mm. portfolio of Central America, so they provided incentives to put plants, uh, move plants from Asia to Central America, and they needed somebody to help run that program for them. And I raised my hand and said, I would love that opportunity. <laughs> and I got it at age 26. Dang. 26. So I was traveling to Costa Rica and Mexico and helping uh, set up manufacturing plants in those cities. I had to work with Latin American software co- developers on developing the the mechanics. But I knew, I knew what the system had to do. And I was reasonably comfortable with the language and reasonably comfortable with the culture. Mm. Which back then, again, that was not normal sure. um, because I grew up in South Texas. There's a lesson there for the listeners. <laughs> you got to inc- expand your comfort zone because it does create opportunities, especially in today's world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So because I was comfortable, I got the opportunity. It's amazing. Yeah. What was that journey like? I mean, in terms of, I, l- I love your phrase, even reasonably comfortable, like comfortable enough to yeah. go, right? Like I wasn't stuck or paralyzed or overwhelmed with my discomfort. I went anyway. Uh, what was that like? What was that experience like? Well, I remember, okay, so I remember my first trip down to San Jose, Costa Rica, which, by the way, is absolutely beautiful. Mm. If you ever get a Never chance been. to go, you need to go. Okay, It's at altitude in the middle of the country. Uh, so it's near the equator, but it's because it's at altitude, it's very temperate, very nice. No bugs. Oh, all the hotels were open air. I mean, there was no Amazing. screen on the window. Yeah. So it's like, man, I hope some <laughs> giant roach doesn't come, come flying in while I'm sleeping. Uh, woke up and just the, the, the beauty of mm. it with the tropical mountains. I mean, just spectacular mm. beauty. And then, of course, you know, you're, you're in a foreign country. You know you're in a foreign country when you arrive at the airport and there's civil police with, with uh, Uzi machine yeah. guns. Weapons. You know, yeah, it's like... <laughs> Oh, all right. Got it. Yep. Uh, Coast- We're not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Costa Rica's like Switzerland. They're neutral. So they don't even have an army, but they do have civil police. So it's peace, very peaceful country, which made me comfortable. But then you go to the plant and it looks like any other apparel plant, uh, except the people dressed, uh, really well, which was, I mean, they, they actually dressed up to go to work, which was, I had no idea. Like the production. Didn't, didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah. You're in a manufacturing plant. Most people yeah. are, you know, I'm wearing my yep. sweats and just yep. trying to, because I'm going to work up a sweat. Yep. And, uh, but people dressed up, which was interesting. And of course, the language, most of them spoke no English. So in order to relate, you had to at least attempt to speak Spanish. Now I had learned, I'd learned how to cuss a lot in, <laughs> in South Texas. That obviously wasn't going to work, but I was also reasonably comfortable with saying words that we could they could piece together a sentence from my enough. very yeah. broken Spanish. Yeah. And I could piece together a sentence from their very broken English. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you made the effort to be like them, it, it was awesome. What they didn't like was nobody trying to speak their language because we were in their country. So I, I felt really comfortable, learned a lot. Um, but I want to I go back that. to the what they wore because uh, – you know, just through getting to know them, they said, well, why don't you come to my neighborhood? You know, come by the house. Well, we'd take some jaunts um, after work to the slums. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they lived on in dirt floor huts with tin roofs yeah. on a mountainside. I mean, 
and they cared enough about their job that they actually dressed. It was like going to church. I mean, they, they wore their best clothes to work, Man. to impress, mm. which, was an, which was an amazing, which is an amazing experience. Mm. But beautiful people, mm. wonderful experience. We did a good job for the company. Um, but I, I learned so much of that. Yeah, dang. Then something massive happened in the marketplace that changed the trajectory of my career. Dockers were made by Levi's, the alternative casual pant, which yep. oh, you yeah. still see, oh, yeah. those of you who wear Dockers. <laughs> um, it was new in 19, 1989, 19, somewhere in that huh. range. 1989 is when they launched Dockers. Interesting, okay. And Lee Jeans had not anticipated that. And all of a sudden, they were a billion-dollar company. They lost a quarter of revenue, Good night. basically in a snap. And so they were they were cutting people right and left just to try to survive the intrusion the of the market to yeah. this denim yeah. alternative called Dockers. And so I was I was safe. I was in the international manufacturing side, mm. but the culture of the company really diminished. Everybody was frustrated. Everybody was scared. Everybody and I remember taking it home with me. Still sure. didn't have a kid yet. So I'm five years, four or five years into my marriage. And um, I just decided I'm, I'm checking the market. But lo and behold, there's a, a startup apparel company in Kansas City called Gear for Sports. And they were looking for a controller. And I was like, well, I'm, my technical competency is in, in the accounting. I'm a CPA. I interviewed, didn't hear boo from them for <laughs> months. So I just kept doing my thing yep. at Lee. And yep. then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I get a call like three months later. No other calls, no nothing. Offering me the job. Hey, guess what? Another pay cut. Mm. But I wanted to be, I, I was sick of the bureaucracy, the, yep. the negative tone, the tenor in the yep. lead. The culture being Yeah, diminished. it was really, really hard, really yep. hard. And I loved what I saw gear, so I accepted. So it was two times I took a pay cut <laughs> to, to, to change. There's a lesson for you. Yep. It's not all bad, necessarily. Yep. Yep. And, uh, Depends so on then what I, you're going to. Yeah, yeah then I course. started my career at Gear, which was very entrepreneurial. Mm. There was no bureaucracy, very exciting. Mm. They were a very niched player in selling to college bookstores, destination resorts, and corporate premiums mm. with very, very high-quality apparel. So um, I started out as controller there and uh, helped them build the processes and systems to be good. And then, um, as fate would have it, their VP of operations uh, – left the company uh, involuntarily and he uh, I went to the president and I not unlike what I did at Lee I asked for the role for the international manufacturing I went to the president of gear and said I would like the VP of operations role and I got that job awesome and so now I'm 29 I'm responsible for 800 people whole in an enterprise I just finished my MBA in 1990, which is when I joined uh, Gear for Sports, and so I'm reading every book I can get my hands on, <laughs> on on new management. And there was a lot of things happening mm. then. Uh, empowerment was a big thing. Mm. Um, Thriving on Chaos by Tom Peters mm. was a book that was it was all about how do you get decision making and knowledge pushed down into the enterprise? Why do we incent people? Where's leadership? So leadership was evolving very quickly then, and, and I just ate it up. Mm. 
And as those themes all still are very relevant today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're we're educated way beyond our obedience is kind of what I, what I I say. I mean, how many, how many times do you have to read the same thing before you start to, (laughs) before you start to absorb it? Well, I absorbed it because I was a heads down accountant, pretty good accountant, I think. Mm. And, and then finally I learned that, no, it's about the people. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking about handholding and holy huddles and just that. I'm talking about, can you get people to cooperate with you in the work at hand? That's the main thing. And to me, that started to dictate how I carried myself as a human being in, sure. in front of a bunch of people where I'm the young guy. A lot of my workers were old enough to be my parents. Mm. How do I carry myself in ways that, uh, that there's mutual respect, that everybody listens, that you build trust? And um, that started me on an executive career, you know, for 35-plus years. Holy cow, that's beautiful. I, I knew parts of that, but to hear the way in which you described that journey um, was really neat. It's it's really, again, I, I love, edu- we're educated um, beyond our obedience is so true because it's like that that 1990 lesson is v- every bit, if not more, important and impactful in 2022. Absolutely. It, from a leadership, from a culture, from a... Um, invitation to take and build responsibility into the depths of the, of whatever organization it is in which we're, we find ourselves. And, and what's also true is like, it's really hard. It's, it's easier in the short term to demand and, and dictate, go, go do this right now. You, you on the team go. Uh, And, and to your point earlier of like, well, without explanation or without trust or without an invitation to something bigger, of course everyone's going to kick against that, yeah. buck against that trend, right? Yeah, great connection back to the why, right? Mm. Very good. And what I found out as a young executive is that the people who were 10 years my senior didn't, didn't want to read those books. You know, it was command and control. Rank has its privilege. And again, these were wonderful gentlemen, by the way. So don't, yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. want to paint yeah, of them course. as all dark. Of course. But they didn't understand, and, and nor did they want to have the patience or the time mm. to do these things. Mm. So mm. not one one to not take orders, mm. which I've explained. <laughs> uh, I had to I had to take my executive seniors uh, figuratively, not literally, because I wanted to make sure I handled things to optimize cooperation, which I believe is what leadership is all about, optimizing cooperation. And uh, I'll give you, for instance, I was asked by the chairman once, they, he's, he, he, he did what they, we call drive-bys. So, you know, he, here's a guy who started the company, very professional, very smart, very wealthy, walks the floor, and it's, you know, he's throwing zingers out to my employees that I'm responsible for, well, don't do that. Do this and that, and so I. Zingers in a negative way, like not well, just, yeah. just, yeah, just, just telling him what to do. And of course, I'm he's the big boss, right? I'm yep. the little boss. Yep. Yeah. And there was a reason we had people doing things the way we were doing them yep. that he didn't want to care about. So he he'd call me in and go, Dave, I saw this. I want you to get rid of that person. I went. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I go, Bob, you want those problems solved, right? Because if I had obeyed him literally, I would have ruined my career. I would have ruined the yep. operations of the company. Yeah. I said, you want those problems solved, right? And he goes, yes, I do. I go, I'm going to go solve those problems for you. Then mm-hmm. I would do it my way, mm-hmm. um, which was very different than I'm sure he would have done it. Mm-hmm. And some of it was putting people at ease, say, you know what? He's right, but understand what he's saying with his message. 
you know, like he might see a shirt that has a fly in it and he go, well, that's a saleable shirt. Just put it in the box and ship it. I say, wait, let's not forget our standards. Okay. Is he right? Is this a saleable shirt? I know you want perfection or you want really good or is that overprocessed? You know, so you have those dialogues with yeah. your people and they start to think, oh, okay. So we're not going to change. I said, no, we're not going to change. We're going to stick to our guns and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted to see the, they wanted to see the factory with boxes and carts full so that people walk in and say, oh, you guys are busy. Well, I studied lean manufacturing and the theory of constraints. <laughs> which Work in process is bad. And, and you can improve your throughput, right? Mm. Uh, that's what we did. And so they, they I, I kept trying to explain to them, no, we don't want more work in process. Yeah. And then we'd start to ship, ship twice as many goods <laughs> the, the day when they, you didn't see any work in process versus the other. And they started to figure out, oh, okay. So, mm. so again, so you have to take awesome. them figuratively, not literally. And, and so I took full advantage of that as a young executive to – to show care and concern for our people, to build trust with our people, um, you know, to champion bonuses for people, to give raises when it wasn't their anniversary date, which was very countercultural, and had to win some battles and use a few bullets here and there to make those things happen. But we grew that company from eight hundred million to two hundred million in by nineteen ninety nine. Eighty eighty million to two hundred mm-hmm. million. Okay, that it in. In less than a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Because you answered the question I was going to ask, which was, okay, what if people listening are like, cool, that's cute, that feels empathetic, that feels like understanding, don't care, it doesn't drive results. Mm. And I would beg to differ. <laughs> yeah, I know you would. That's yeah. Why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you proved the point. If you went from 80, and well, somebody may, well, you could have gone from 80 to 300 if you would have commanded and controlled them. It could have happened faster. That's why people stick with it, right? But it doesn't honor and dignify human beings. That's right. And so at some point you have to go question what's the purpose of business, right? You know, I could go on. I would love (laughs) to hear the, 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 the entry. Let me, um, let me, let me just go back to mid nineties because there's a really important inflection point in the mid nineties. So again, I was a Christmas and Easter Christian, right? And my, uh, our first child was born in 1988, and then we had one born in 1991, and my son was born in 1995. And my, my, young, my oldest daughter, who was born in 1988, uh, my wife was born and raised Catholic, so she'd take her going through the process of forming her as a, as a Catholic girl, and she went to her first, you know, her confirmation, I think, was the sacrament, and... Uh, She'd ask the question, how come daddy doesn't go to church? And I, my answer was, well, because it's really boring and I've got better things to do <laughs> than to go to spend an hour being bored to death. <laughs> um, well, my wife, you know, was uh, uh, was always applying just gentle pressure. Think she knew me. Mm. I, don't, I don't like, you know, she was just very gentle. And then at some point she said that she says, hey, I don't care where we go to church we'll go anywhere, but you know, I don't want to keep answering our daughter's question. And you know, she was right. So uh, we found a church that was an evangelical Christian church that had really, really good music, which is mm-hmm. kind of synonymous with an evangelical church, yeah. really good teaching. I mean, human beings yeah. being human that I could relate to that there weren't guys in robes with ribbons that weren't married, 
And so they're talking about, you know, marriage. They're talking about losing children, which Mm -hmm. was one of my worst nightmares. I mean, Mm -hmm. and I said, okay, these are real people talking about real things. I want to, I'll, I'll, I'm in if we can go here, not there. Yeah. And so that's where my faith journey started. This was the mid nineties. And, and I, again, I hadn't, wasn't well read in the Bible. So I started reading the Bible, uh, going to different spiritual development things. And then all of a sudden I stumbled across Ecclesiastes four, nine in the old Testament and Ecclesiastes four, nine says two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. Some translations are good reward for their toil. And I said, hmm, I know a lot about leadership because that's what I've studied. And all of a sudden, I read two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. And from my perspective, that was the bedrock truth about leadership, that if you can get people to lock arms with you doing anything, the odds are the two of you will beat the one person. So there's competitive advantage implications. And I'm not, I don't mean to be entirely utilitarian because Hmm. what it implies is you have to carry yourself in ways that optimizes cooperation that are quite countercultural. If you believe the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder wealth, because that can be very cold and it's not about locking arms. It's about me versus you or my hierarchy, my title, my wealth is more important than your wealth. You're a means to an end not an end in and of yourself. And so that just solidified my belief in leadership as the art of optimizing cooperation. Hold and when I had back. the faith piled on, it, it was just an exponential explosion for me and what I feel like my calling is. And so I used that idea, that concept to, to change, not just gear, but to change lots of companies. I've never heard anyone Describe leadership as the art of maximizing cooperation. It's brilliant, man. Well, it's got to be on biblical. your books. It's biblical. Yeah. Oh, it's in the, it's in okay. my, I've written four and it, it started in my first book. Okay. Is it yeah. that to me was, yeah. that's where it all started for yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we grow gear. I get frustrated at gear. Some things had happened. Um, they recapitalized the company, which is not, you know, some of the owners wanted to take some chips off the table. And so I had to reinvest my chips in because I was a very thin minority shareholder. But things started to happen culturally in the company that I was not comfortable with. Hmm. Uh, and I wasn't going to represent that to my people because I was the one that had built trust. And I was the one who, you know, we'd set these ideals in place. And I wasn't going to sacrifice that. So I left and went to Philadelphia as a VP of operations for the nation's largest emblem maker. Emblem maker. And like What's a, that mean? Like a, a label, like a, if you oh, go to oh. an auto shop, and there's yeah, a yeah, name okay, tag that it. says got Otis it. on it or something. Yeah, got it. Yeah, they're little quarter emblems. Okay, got the it. uniform company. Yeah, yeah, got it. Got it, got it. And then they, they, they supplied, you know, 50,000 a day or some Dang. crazy Dang. number of emblems. But, uh, you know, operation, three plants around the U.S. It was it was good. Um, and I wasn't planning on leaving. My I moved my, we moved our family, three kids, my wife, mm. to Philly. Mm. Uh Really enjoyed it. Uh, joined a Korean church, if you can believe that. Sight unseen. Huh. Further awesome. expanding the old comfort zone. Yep. Um, yep. Because I had prayed for a diverse experience, and I thought it might have been an African-American experience I yeah. was going to have, and I was totally a game for it. Yeah. Nope. It was Korean. <laughs> uh, awesome. We were the only white family in the church. That's awesome. I ended up being, I could, I could play guitar and sing a little bit, and so I ended up being their worship leader. I was the token Caucasian. <laughs> leading a Korean band. They were a lot better musicians than I was. 
but I'm the front guy. It was That's just, it was, great. oh, it was, it was awesome. That's but awesome. Um, then something really strange happened. I'm sitting in Atlanta at our plant in Atlanta. And before I had left gear, I had done a business plan to add another factory to the gear for sports portfolio. Mm. We couldn't, unemployment was very low like it is now. We could not find a place to manufacture our apparel. And so we did a study, you know, typical demographic study, two hours radius of Kansas City, where can we put a plant? Well, we knew, but we weren't conscious of it, that within that radius uh, is the largest concentration of inmates in the United States, in Lansing and Leavenworth, Kansas. Mm. You got the big house at Leavenworth. You got Lansing, which is the state's largest mm. prison. You got the disciplinary barracks at Fort Leavenworth. And then you've got CCA, which was a private, private prison. And we simply asked the question, can we put a factory in a prison? We did our research, and the answer is yes, you can, with certain guidelines. I wrote the business plan for it, and before we could implement, I left. So I go to it, I'm at Penn Emblem, and I get a call from the president, the former president of Gear, who left after I left, which is interesting. I didn't like what was going on, then he left. Mm. I don't know what that's about but anyway he <laughs> called me and he says hey dave would you come back and run this factory in the prison so i wasn't looking to leave philly we had just built a house too just Jeez. moved in in september this is january you know so i'm like will you come back and run this company in the prison so not unlike your story i yeah. you know yeah talk to your wife and yeah. and of course we loved kansas city wanted to didn't mm-hmm. want to we weren't afraid to come back because we knew it mm-hmm. and then of course i had i had the one who kind of dreamed up that business. So I said, yep. And so by March, we're back in KC. Dang. Uh, not smart from a real estate play perspective sure. for those of you who <laughs> want to do that. So I ended up running uh, the, the nation's largest prison industry for four years, going to prison every single day. Our office Whoa. literally in the prison, no hostage policy. If they take you, we're not coming in after you. Um, we had 17 civilians because inmates can't supervise inmates, as you could well yeah. imagine. So yeah. we had a whole slew of people, two females mm. within that 17 who mm. went into the prison every day. We ran a legitimate business. If you were to call in that 800 number, an inmate would answer the phone. You'd have no idea it was an inmate wow. answering the phone. It's amazing. We paid prevailing wage. Um, we didn't have to pay health care benefits because they have state-provided state yep. health care, yep. but we had a 401k plan. Mm. We paid college tuition. Mm. We had several graduate with an associate's degree while we were there. Um, they could spend $50 a week in the canteen on the prison, so they became big. Sure. You know, they were the big dudes because they could go buy Denty Moore stew, <laughs> right? Yeah, and everybody else had to eat the prison yeah, food. Yep. Um, and, gosh, I knew guys that left uh, left our employ and left the prison with $30,000, in their pocket instead of 100 bucks and a one-way bus ticket. The state would deduct 25% from their wages uh, for their room and board. So we, our employees actually had to pay for their own cells, wow. about a million bucks a year. I, it, was, it was crazy. But the rub was you couldn't, you could really never promote it because you're going to offend victims. And sure. I get it. Sure. I actually met a victim of one of our employees. And this is one of those god appointments which that's a whole nother story maybe that's for another podcast but just crazy mm-hmm. and it was a very rich human experience very very rich but after four years of being very isolated because mm-hmm. i would go into once you go into the prison you're you know you don't 
you don't just walk out the door and go to lunch. I mean, you right. got to go through the process, yeah. yep. the inspections, the, the gates, the everything. And I said, okay, I, I don't have any good, healthy <laughs> outside of prison <clears throat> relationships mm. and I need, I need a change. So I told my partners that, okay, I'm done. And then they didn't want to go into prison. And so we sold that company. Mm. And by then I had my first book halfway done and I decided I'm going to finish that. And I, again, I didn't know really what my next step was. I didn't have anything lined up. I just said, I know this, I just can't continue doing this. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to die. If I'm not careful. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so that started the book writing. That's amazing. Tell us about the book writing. So it was all based on that whole leadership idea that yeah. leadership is the art of optimizing cooperation. And then of course I integrated my faith as fully and as closely as I could, because what I read biblically about what, the way Jesus carried himself and the way believers carried themselves was synonymous with getting people to want to do the work. Because that's really, when we talk about, we don't manage people, you lead people. They're human beings, they're not cogs in a wheel. And yet our traditional management practices inform us that, oh no, they're interchangeable parts, just spend them. And if, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, it literally, if they die, then Find next, another you know, one. next up, yep. Yep. you know, next man up, get in here, whether it would be a woman or a child. Well, that, that obviously doesn't work today. That's, by the way, when the Catholic Church started to write profusely mm. about um, Christianity and about work and about business and about economics. I knew none of that until you informed me at Square Work six months ago or whatever. Yeah. When you, I, I, I was like, the Catholic Church has a strong take on work I, was I, like, I sound like a dummy saying it well uh, but and, but it was profound yeah. like it was really enlightening to me well and again i'm jumping ahead 20 years because yeah. again at that point i'm i'm not catholic i'm i'm an evangelical christian yeah. and i have the bible which is a fabulous tool which was awesome so yeah. i just knew even biblically that was enough mm-hmm. and so i i developed this passion for how do you live your faith at work for the benefit of your entire business because mm-hmm. i think so many people believe that if if you combine your faith and your work that Oh, this is, we're not going to produce results. It's going to be so soft. Absolutely not. I mean, Jesus wasn't always soft. I mean, he had expectations. He held his followers accountable. Okay. But that still doesn't mean you can't love one another. Concern yourself with each individual person as a human being. Dignify them through work. And just work alone is, Absolutely. is dignifying. Absolutely. And then pursue the common good, which is not just about your personal wealth or the company. It's about the community in which you reside. And so when you hear the complaints today about social injustice, it's very interesting uh, because that is a very hot topic, and I get it. But when business does not concern itself with social justice or remedying social injustice, by the way, business is the largest institution in civil society. And so the morality of society is pretty much dependent on the morality of business leaders. So that's a very big stake in the ground. Okay, <laughs> I love that flag, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, business people define morality of society. I'll let the audience judge <laughs> what that looks like. Okay, but if business doesn't start to remedy social justice, people who want nothing but but more financial security and equity, which is something I think we all want. I mean. If I were to write, you know, yes, I'd like some financial yes, security. Please. Yes, I would yeah. like some, yeah, Sign exactly, yep. some equity. And they can't find it in business. Where do they turn? They turn to the next largest institution in civil society, which is government. 
So they turn to the government and say, hey, can I get some financial security and some equity? So the government responds because they're the insurer of those things, and they say, well, yes, we can, so let's develop a program. Mm -hmm. All right, so business ignores social justice. The government intervenes because they have to. They provide it, and then the people in business start to look at that government intervention as negative, which I understand, and they complain about it, but what they don't realize is that that was They're our responsibility. <laughs> yeah, that responsibility yeah. was ours to yeah. begin with. And yeah. that's exactly what the Catholic Church teaches, that it's our responsibility primarily. Mm. Remember the, the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Love your neighbor. We've abdicated that role to the government. Mm. Why can't in our companies we can love our employees as our neighbors? And we do pay living wages, and we do pay and concern ourselves with single moms, who I believe are the widows of today. They live the exact same life. That's right. How come we don't concern ourselves with that? Because if we don't, guess what? They live a really difficult life, and and they become dependent on a government. And then when the government intervenes, they generally don't pull out, contrary, by the way, to Catholic teaching too. Because the Catholic Church says government should intervene when when those things aren't being addressed, but only for a short period of time. Well, that's not the way it works. When the government intervenes, that program that program perpetuates, creates unhealthy dependencies, and we end up in the world we're in today. The key there is for us in business to recognize it's it's us. It's our cross to bear. It's our responsibility to care for our people. They've been entrusted to us. We're stewards of their lives, not just economically, but spiritually. Mm. Now the faith and work, again, start to intervene again. And that's my passion. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, and I've learned that. I didn't know any of this until I came to Benedictine after a couple other entrepreneurial ventures. That's, uh, it's like brilliant, <clears throat> excuse me, and profound and deep. I can quite literally in the room feel your energy and your passion towards it, and it's, it's real, it's true, it's authentic, it's beautiful. It reminds me <clears throat> of a story, and I'll, I'll, I'll not name the human or the organization, but it reminds me of the um, antithesis of that culture, where I, at one point um, in my career, was told um, two, two, two specific things from two specific different people. First encounter was um, you, general you, to a group of humans. You are an embarrassment to this organization. Okay. <laughs> that lands pretty pretty well a lot of dignity in that in that uh edict um second was a a little bit more of a casual one-on-one conversation in which i was told let's be honest we're all just using each other for our own um journey up this ladder (laughs) and i said hmm that might feel true to you that is not the way in which i would like to operate my life and uh again wonderful humans, all of them, um, neat people, smart people, but the, the, the soul ripping, um, disintegration and the, un, um, the disharmony of, of like, wait a second. I, I thought I added value here. I thought I mattered. I thought you saw me. I thought I was something other than a revenue number. Right. And, and I, it, to me, it's the stark contrast very deliberately, of course, it's the stark contrast to what what you're describing and and what I think we're we're it, we're trying to build. We're doing it so imperfectly, but we're trying to build a place where 
humans are valued. Humans are seen. <laughs> humans are inspired to, um, to, to do something with the God-given gifts they've been handed, right? And, and encouraged to, um, to find those and explore those and make mistakes and say, I'm sorry, right? Like that, that whole, um, and it's interesting because it, it, it is a, you, you used this word earlier or this concept, it requires more patience. It just does. Um, and I, th- I think, and it sounds like you're teaching me even in this moment, it is the way. <laughs> it, it is the way. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me. I think one of the places that those of us or those who are listening, uh, a place to start is you have to challenge the dominant ideology that the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder wealth. And by the way, that is not what Milton Friedman said. That's been tweaked and butchered and, and edited, yeah, yeah. butchered up to this point. But he did say the only social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. Think about that. The only social responsibility of business. And that ideology has dominated teaching for 50 years. And we wonder why we have what we have in business. You overlay that relative morality, relativism, absent real truth because think about it people who who purported a christian faith which is de facto concerned with other human beings um and now they behave in ways contrary to that at business they're hypocrites who sees truth in that so again we christians look at the world and we criticize it because they've they've basically pushed the church you know to the curbs of society when in fact it's the hypocrisy that people see when you're working that is the cause of That's right. that. That's so right. again, it comes full circle. Profit is no more the purpose of business than oxygen is the purpose of life. Mm. They're both very necessary. So if profit's not it, then what is? And at the end of the day, it's about human flourishing. Work was made for man because there's dignity in it. And so we, we who, who are fortunate enough to work and lead businesses in a free market, think about that honor. Think about that vocation. The Catholic Church calls uh, the business leader a vocation. Even they use the term noble. It's a noble vocation. And so my encouragement to anybody is to challenge the status quo. Find your own way in this regard. And it's much, much easier when you find the truth of the Christian faith supporting that because without it you're going to be subject to the waves and the winds that that rock society um and again i could go much deep (laughs) much deeper into that and you have in book (laughs) yeah the most amazing thing i I read recently was adam smith who's thought of as the the godfather of free market economics and laissez-faire government the division of labor he wrote a book 10 years prior to this wealth of nations called the theory of moral sentiments and he anticipated exactly where we are today because that was in the post-Enlightenment where the church had been already removed from society. The public institutions had set aside the religion. And so he's trying to decide, how do we determine morality? And he, he chalked it up, well, society's going to determine it. And that's exactly where we are today. But in order for a free market to be well-functioning, you've got to have rights to private property, which we... In America, we, we almost can't think any differently. Right. Like, um, uh, yeah. And the yeah. Catholic Church says yes to that because we've been given a dominion. That's part of that. Mm-hmm. 
always subject to the universal destination of goods, which means even though we, we get to own the property, it's not for our own personal benefit. It's for the benefit of everyone. So it's to be shared because when we, we can't take any of it with us, right? When we go on to eternity, um, rule of law that protects competition and protects human beings, which we also have in the United States. We have two of the three really critical components for a well-functioning free market. And Adam Smith identified this, and I'm parroting it, and I'm paraphrasing it, though, is that the third thing that we need to have is a fixed set of moral rules. Go back to business as the largest institution in civil society. Because if we don't have moral rules, we have relativism, ideologies like the purpose of business is to maximize shareholder wealth, take hold. Where's our moral compass in that? Your means to an end. You, you know, are a disgrace <laughs> yeah, that's right. to my company. And that's by right. the way, let's just be honest. We're just using each other to get there, which, are, which yeah. was your representation. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what we get yeah. when we have no moral foundation. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get back to that moral foundation. And the Christian faith provides it. But we have to live it. We can't talk about it. Words are cheap. Too much hypocrisy. Yeah, that's right. So speaking of, it's actually perfect because in my brain I'm thinking, okay, so what? So what practically do business owners do? What practically does, um, do employees start to think? How, how does this fabric start to get stronger? How does this, uh, if it is countercultural, and I think it is, um, seems pretty evident that it is. Um, if this way of business can become stronger and can be tied together in tighter ways that are more coherent, what are, I don't know, a couple practical concepts or thoughts or ways in which you would advise startups, entrepreneurs, business owners, leaders in companies to start thinking and acting and behaving. Wow. I mean, so (laughs) now we get to the brass tacks, right? Because there's, there's a rut that's been worn and that rut sometimes is so deep. We mistake the, uh, the edge of the rut for the horizon. You know, I mean, there's a whole nother world above this. So I think a lot of what has to happen, I mean, there's soul searching to be done. I mean, I've had to do it. I mean, I didn't know this stuff. I mean, I'm 61, right? So I didn't know this until I was in my 40s. And I'd done a lot of reading and research. And so I had to think back those times, oh, my gosh, I I ruined that person or I stepped all over that person. And so I think getting comfortable with uh, things you've done that you're not proud of and making amends in some way, shape, or form and forgiving yourself for those is a really good place to start. That sounds really soft, but that's probably nothing more powerful in the world than to, than to do that because the first step, I would argue, is what is your way of being toward people? And uh, there's in the book The Anatomy of Peace that talks about two ways of being, people as objects or people as people. Hmm. And, again, those are some of the things you might have to make amends for and apologize for that's as right. I've objectified my people when in fact I want to treat people as people. And that obviously starts to open the door to perhaps a faith orientation that could be really beneficial to you because you're swimming upstream in today's world for sure. Yeah. Uh, people are means to an end, not ends in and of themselves. Um, so th- I would start with that forgiveness, forgive yourself, and then um, make sure you're comfortable and develop a solid way of being. And I think your faith steps are really a really important part to that. Yeah. Then you got to be honest with the employees that are that are the audience to you. you 
what are the values? I, I, when I teach my graduate leadership class, the place I have them start is both vulnerable and trust building. As I said, and usually when you get in front of your employees, you're saying, well, this is what I expect of you. <laughs> Flip the script and say, That's okay, right. I want to go on record. This is what you can expect of me. And they're probably, their eyes are probably going to get really big and go, whoa, wait a minute. And then you have to commit to a Isn't set that? of values and That's beliefs right. that you're going to be held accountable for. Right. Now, again, if you if you behave differently yesterday than, than you are in that set of values, right, you're going to have to prove that this is who you are. That's why the way of being is so critically important. But just by doing that, you create a more vulnerable culture. If you've studied any of Patrick Lencioni or Brene Brown, yep. Yep. Bring it's it. all about Bring Vulner- vulnerabil- yep. vulnerability, yep. right? Yep. So now they start to be vulnerable. Now you start to have human interactions. And you can talk above board about what we need to be as a company. You know, we need to make money. How do we do that? You guys help sit around the table. Let's brainstorm. How do we, yeah. for the benefit of everybody, not just us here, but our communities, our families, our, our single moms in our communities, mm-hmm. let's make this what God intended for this to be. That's what business should be about. Dang, brother. <laughs> So good. It's so good. And I'm sitting here just soaking it up and, and getting lost in the wisdom and going, oh, I actually have to ask him another question. Uh, but I love the even just the presence of sitting here with you going, yeah, like, yes, please, more of more of that, more leaders like that, more um, empathetic, understanding, vulnerable, heart led, you know, people that have a heartbeat, like we're humans, man. And that to to connect to that, I, I'm reminded of a, a question I got asked by a good friend. Um, he was connecting me to another marketing agency, big agency doing awesome stuff, and he was just he was playing friend, right? He's connecting us, and he asked, he's like, "What's the best part of your each of your jobs? What's the best part of your roles?" And the, the the younger, super smart, talented guy went and had an amazing answer. And I sat there and I was like, man, I don't know. I was like, and, and the words I chose to use, I said, you know what? My, my affections are changing. My affections are, I was like, and I'll always love, I will always love the client thing. Like being with the client, solving a problem, helping them, serving them, growing their business, doing doing whatever. I'll always, I will always love that. I said, but man, my affections the, the deeper we walk this road with these humans on our team, and you know Colin and Rachel and Devin, and I could name them all, right? Um, Jason and Jeremy and Chelsea and Cecilia and Courtney. Now I'm, now I'm going <laughs> to not say somebody. Um, <clears throat> but Claudia, Tyler, <laughs> Dorothy. Um, it's like an Academy yeah, Award list. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. only 13 of us. Alex, you're the man. Um I'm connecting to, I know there's like one or two left, but I'll come back to it. Um, but it's like to see, and, and we're, we're stumbling our way through the dark lots of days and some hard, hard gritty paths, but to see their lives start to be transformed, to get a text from Jason's wife who says, Hey, you have, and it's not me. I can't take, I literally can't take the credit you have allowed us to have Jason home and go on a walk with our daughters during the day, right? Like to see what that, the human flourishing part, your, your concept. I thought of that. I was like, man, it, it, it is hard, gritty patience building work, but that road is worth walking. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for your, for your wisdom. I, I gotta know, man, cause you, 
uh, I know the answer, but we haven't talked about it in this conversation. You went from great music and great teaching and didn't like the robes. That's right. <laughs> we never flipped because because now That's now right. you're now I you're know. into the robes. That's God's bro. sense of humor there, man. <laughs> now you're into the it's robes. Like, okay, so, I knew you'd come back. Yeah, when, yeah. You know. Now you're now you're into the robes. I am. So tell me, how'd that go down? Well, <clears throat> it's really pretty simple. Um, when I came to Benedictine, again, I was a novice. I'd never, I mean, I've always been a teacher, but not a formal teacher. And so when I started to to, to prep here at the college, I had my Bible because I knew it. And I was, uh, and I'm at a Catholic college, which most Catholics aren't known for being Bible you know, readers because they have the priest to uh, uh, read and interpret it for them, which is fine. But I was taking it to class, and I had some students who liked that, and they, they said, well, why don't you study what the Catholic Church teaches about business? And I was like, yeah, you know, no, nah, I'm good. I got, <laughs> I don't, I'm good. And they just, no kept, they just kept talking about it. And I was, you know, I really didn't want to do it, but finally one of the kids got a hold of me and said, have you ever read a papal encyclical? And I said, excuse me? <laughs> You stutter. Uh, uh, you know, pa- yeah. <laughs> Could you spell that for me? Papal encyclical. So writings of popes that are relevant around uh, social justice and responsibility. And I said, no, I've never. Then they said, well, you need to read Rerum Novarum. It was written by Pope Leo the Thirteenth in eighteen ninety one. And I said, you know, I was almost like, okay, I'll get this kid off my back, <laughs> and, and I'll go read this. Well, little did I know. I read the first paragraph, said, okay. Second paragraph, okay. Third paragraph, I about fell out of my chair because he defined the core problem. And I'm going to grossly paraphrase, but 1891, in the throes of the Industrial Revolution in Europe, again, women are working, children are working until death. There's this massive uh, abuse of human beings flocking from the rural countryside into the urban centers, because uh, demand had outstripped supply. So now the capitalists, you know, uh, uh, consistent with Adam Smith's idea, right? Division of labor, make the work so stupid and break it down in such a small part that anybody without any education could do it. And that's what's happening. And then out of that is, is rising this idea of socialism because socialism, my words, are a lagging indicator of injustice. Hmm. So when you have it, it's wow. telling you there's something unjust happening. So Pope Leo scribes Rerum Novarum, and in the third paragraph he says, the public institutions and the law set aside the ancient religion. Hence, hence, employees have become subject to uh, greed and um, unregulated competition. And again, gross paraphrasing, yeah. but it's, it's something like that. Not the first part, that was literal. And I said, so the core problem is the fact that we've abandoned mm-hmm. our faith. Thus, we end up with the ideologies that are driving industry today. And I, I just, I, I said, oh my gosh. And I'm a problem, I'm a problem solver by nature, yeah. you know, so I'm like, well, I love, when I get to core problems. I love a good like, problem. Well, well, there it is. That's not a symptom. That's, yeah. that's the, the problem. Root. That's and the to root. me, that's that invitation yeah. of, again, faith to work, which I knew was there anyway. But then when I read it in Catholic teaching, I thought, well, that's, I had no idea. Then I started reading more and reading more, and the Catholic Church condemns socialism. Mm. It's antithetical to human nature. They condemn it, not implicitly, explicitly. So I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and then they asked they ask the question, is capitalism then the chosen preferred 
system. And they say yes with caveats, but they say if it's not subjugated uh, to a basis of freedom that is both religious and ethical, then no, it's not. I'm like, well, that's interesting. So anyway, I've, I've just tried to, and I've only scratched the surface, but in my fourth book, Truth in the Transcendent Business, I, I delve into Adam Smith, I delve into um, Frederick Hayek, I delve into the Catholic teaching on, on really a different purpose of business that is about human flourishing and how leadership defined as the art of optimizing cooperation is such a big part of it. And if we, we have to practice virtue, that's the key. And anybody can be virtuous. You don't have to be Christian to be virtuous. I know a lot of people who aren't Christians that are very virtuous. And I'm talking wise, prudent, just, and courageous. Those are the cardinal virtues. Have you so, read Ryan Holiday's stuff yet? He, Ryan Holiday's writing on the, those four virtues. And I think he's just released Courage, so it's a four-part. Really? No, I have But yeah, but it's, I'll, uh, I'll do that. Um, yeah, it's amazing. The virtuous cycle. Yeah. 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 But the, the magic comes with the theological virtues mm. of faith, hope, and love. I mean, because you can see those other four things in business by anybody. But when you have faith, um, you have hope. You know, faith breeds hope. Then love, literally, or charity, um, that's the supernatural piece. That When those things are exhibited at work, not only do people cooperate more, which creates competitive advantage, more value, more wealth generation, which requires more virtue, but it manifests that new purpose of business, human flourishing. It's beautiful. Y'all can hear, uh, you can't see, I'm the only one who can see it, but you guys can hear the, um, the, the deep, deep, deep wisdom and, uh, and benevolence in, in the professor, the great professor. <laughs> we got to land the plane, man. Um, uh, otherwise I could ask you a million questions. So, um, let's do, let's, let's pause on this one. We'll come back and ask some more later. Um, so I prepped you kind of on these five, but let's, let's, Let's uh let's get there, man. Um, final five, first one. Um, and my gosh, I'm so deep in the conversation. <laughs> I'm like, uh, where's my mental uh, connection here? Okay, uh, number one, what would you do right now if you weren't? No, I I butchered the question. Number one, um, favorite or very recent book you've read or listened to? My gosh, I stumbled through that. You bet. <laughs> so the one of the. I've got, I'm one of those people with, you know, five or six books that are half read, yeah. right? So, yeah. but the one I uh, just completed is called Everybody Matters by Bob Chapman mm. and Raj Sisodio. Mm. Bob is the uh, chairman of Barry Waymiller, a large uh, multinational manufacturing company of equipment, mm. which is not one of those businesses that you think is robust, but his journey and, um, his implementation of their leadership paradigm and management is called truly human leadership. It, it is absolutely unbelievable mm. what he's done. Mm. Um, and while he speaks in a secular tongue, the spirit is Very Christian. Evident. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And um, truly it's human tr leadership. Tru yeah, and the name of the book is Everybody Matters. Cool. Really a cool. Top. If, so if you need evidence or you think, gosh, this sounds great, but how do you do it? They actually have a uh, cool. uh, a game plan mm. uh, in the book. Mm. So you can kind of follow along what they did. That's amazing. It, it's really great That's cool. Book, yeah. That's cool. You are a sharp and well-dressed fella. You're a professor after all. Um, although today you are rocking the, 
the white and blue Air Maxes, which is right. amazing. <laughs> when I'm 61, I hope I'm still wearing Air Maxes. Um, but in a non-button shirt kind of a day, what's your favorite T-shirt? You know, so let me, I'm going to give you a caveat, and then I'll try to land my plane on that one. Um, I wear shirts until they rot off of me, literally. <laughs> um and of course, if you're talking, most of my t-shirts don't have an affinity. I mean, mm. they're not screen printed, mm. but um, mm. a threadbare t-shirt, mm. uh, perhaps even with the sleeves cut off. Nice, um, nice. You know that it lo- that shows that I've worked a little bit in the world. That <laughs> I have holes all over it. My wife just says, "You are not That's going. So out. You are not yeah. going out in the yard to work in that." I say, "Oh yes, I am." You watch me, man. <laughs> Those are really, <laughs> anyway, really comfortable. That's yeah. You know, that's great. Yeah. I love it. Um, what would you do right now if you weren't afraid? So there's a scripture verse, and again, I, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I'll be close. It says, "Perfect love casts out all kinds of fear." You know, so you think about it. Um, I do, I do feel because of my faith that uh, I'm not deserving, but I believe I'm loved by someone who loves perfectly, right? God, and um, I tell you, I love what I'm doing. Honestly, I mean, I, I took a monstrous pay cut from being a CEO to being a college professor, especially at an institution where the sponsoring. Uh, um, Monks and nuns took a vow of poverty. <laughs> you know, that kind of trickled down. Um, but I tell you, I love doing this. Uh, I, oh gosh, I, I think I, I think I'm doing what I'm called to do, which awesome. is teach these younger generations. But again, the privilege of being on a podcast is to also reach people off this yeah, campus because right. this is, this truth has to be yeah. shared. Yeah. Uh, so I, I I'm going to stick with what I'm doing. I love it. I love it. Um, favorite place on earth is it's got to be a beach. Yeah. Got to be palm trees. Yep. Got to be sunshine. Uh, and there's any numerous, I, of course I live in Kansas. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> any beach, anywhere, anytime yeah. I'm going to, um, you have a favorite, you know, I love Florida. I love yeah. the Gulf coast of Florida. <clears throat> Same. Um, it's just, yeah, I just like it. Yeah. And Same. I only get down there once every couple of years. Yeah. But, yeah, it would definitely be a beach. That's great. Um, all right, man, last one, a little heavier. When it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, I hope that uh, my legacy is draws other people to Jesus, I guess, more than anything. Um, I have a particular passion in in business and i i hope business becomes that vehicle that draws people i mean that's i think that's why god put me there i believe mm-hmm. i'm called to the vocation of business um most people would never correlate the two that i'm going to find jesus in business are you kidding me that's going to repel me from <laughs> jesus right well the way it is today that's true mm-hmm. but those of us who are christians who have been called to business we know it and we've not been able to reconcile our faith with our work i'm Maybe this podcast is a blessing to somebody and they start on that journey. And if it is, then I'd love for you to contact me and I'd love to connect. Let's build this community because this has to happen. Absolutely. Because there's a consequence. If we don't take up our cross and because of the eyes of the world turning to the government as the institution, if it's not in business, we will lose our country. 
we will lose our life, we will lose our liberty, and we will lose the pursuit of happiness mm. for all, simply because we as Christians did not take up our cross and live consistent with our faith in business. As <clears throat> as professional storytellers in our bit in our world that we do, we always ask this question in every meeting we're working on, whatever it is, if it's a video project, a website project, a new brand campaign, whatever it is, we always ask, what's at stake in the store? Something has to be at stake for anybody to care. What's at stake? And you just outlined what's at stake. You just answered the question that was unasked of, that's at stake. That's a massive at stake. It is a massive at um, stake. And you you also teed up the end here. Um, rat, name the, the four books real quick. Um, where people can find them, and then directly how folks can connect to you. You bet. So um, you can find the books on Amazon. There's a couple that are out of print, but you, I'm sure you can get a, another one. You know how they sell them for 50 cents. You can probably get a really good buy. <laughs> yeah. My most recent yeah. book is called Truth in the Transcendent Business, available on Amazon both in paperback and audiobook. Uh, I'll tell you, it's a hard read. Um, I'm not one for for fluff. So if, <laughs> Really? Really? <you> <laughs> So I, I apologize for those of you who like to have these long on ramps and off ramps. It's 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 low. It's it's two hundred pages, it's meaty, but it's bro. probably five hundred yeah. in terms of yeah. facts yeah. and things that matter. Um, but the audio book is much easier to absorb. If if uh, it was for me again, I read my book a hundred times writing it. And then I read the, I heard the audio book and I was like, wow. Did you voice it? I did not. Okay, I hired an actor. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Reader. I, yeah. I got a decent voice, but not like yours. I, I should have I should have hired you. <clears throat> Please, man. Um, so the book before that was called uh, Nothing is Free, The Price Only Business Leaders Can Pay to Protect Free Markets. It's a fable. It's written about a female CEO who takes her private company public and learns the hard way why public companies are the way they are. And then she goes through her faith journey. Uh, cool. And it takes place here in Atchison, which is interesting. So awesome. uh, awesome. it's it's realistic fiction. So if you like a story that's easier to read, but it still Lencioni gets... writes that style sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. No, yeah, I, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And then, so I love that I, I stuff. unveil yeah. it. Yeah, I unveil it that way. So it's yeah. a good read. That, unfortunately, is going to be hard to find. Um, but hopefully you can find it. My The book prior to that was called Leader Slip, Reversing the Slide of American Enterprise Leadership. It's, it's more of a sec- secular read that gives lots of tools. For people who want to perhaps transition into better leadership that's about optimizing cooperation, a lot of tools that I've developed and frameworks I've used. It's awesome. And then the first book was called Arise, Life-Changing Truths for the Tormented Leader. Mm. And that's really very much about faith and work and, and leadership is the art of optimizing cooperation. Amazing. Where can people follow you or connect to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, feel free to email me at dgenens, G-E-E-N-E-N-S, at benedictin.edu awesome and awesome. Uh, uh you can also there's a blog uh for my fourth book truth in the transcendent business at um www.truthandtranscendentbusiness.com love it and we'll drop all that in the show notes so that'll be super helpful man um my friend thanks for making space and sharing um, all that's going on in you and through you. <laughs> Grateful for the, uh, the experience today, my friend. Thanks a ton. Thanks for having me. Of course. As always, thank you for listening. Your attention is super valuable, so thank you for giving it to us. If you're a fan of the show, please go rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. I would really appreciate it. Until next time, when we get to share another great conversation with you, have a great week and let your life tell a meaningful story.